Hey, before we dive into James today, I just wanted to just congratulate you and uh, our ping pong initiative has finished up uh, and we were really encouraging you to invite people and to represent each person with a ping pong ball, which we at our elders meeting this week will be praying over these 71 people, 71 so over the past two months, you invited 71 people to church. You should give yourselves a round of applause for doing that. Good work. Don't stop inviting people, right? That's like, oh, we're not doing the ping pong initiative, so I don't have to invite people anymore. That would be a mistake. This is just a fun way for us to get it started and get the ball rolling figuratively and literally. Ball rolling. Anybody catch that? Okay. Same response that my kids give me. Today, we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 19 to Chapter 2, verses 13. So as you're turning there in your Bibles, let me just start with this. When I was 15 years old, I became a follower of Jesus, or at least became a committed follower of Jesus. And when I did, I became obsessed with reading the Bible. I became immersed in it. I read it for hours. I, I like, I grabbed my pen. And, like, if you looked at my Bible from then, my whole, like, every verse is underlined. There's notes in every margin. I just, it, like, it changed my life reading the Bible. So naturally, when I decided to go to college, I chose a Bible college. And my first class was on biblical interpretation. And I ate that class up. It was the first time I ever heard about uh, observation, which is like, what does the Bible actually say? Then interpretation, what does it mean? And then application, which is what is it, like, how does it change my life? And like, I just ate it up. And my first assignment, I remember my first assignment distinctly. We were given two verses from Philippians. And we were told to go that after class, when we're doing our homework, you can get 25 observations from two verses. And that's the first time I ever looked at the Bible like that. So that was a struggle for me. But I got my 25 observations, right? What does the Bible say? Not what I think it means. What does it actually say? What do these two verses actually say? And I, I struggled, but I came back with my 25. And my professor said to all of us, great, good job, everyone. Tomorrow, bring back 25 more. And it was a struggle but I loved it. I loved that class. I loved all my Bible classes. But over time, here's what happened. The Bible went from being a life-changing book for me to being a textbook. I started to read the Bible to prove others wrong and make myself right. A lot of Christians treat the Bible that way. Let's show how we're right and everybody else is wrong. That's why we read the Bible. So for me, reading the Bible correctly was about being right. But when we read James, reading the Bible correctly is about life change and obedience. In many ways, James is saying, like, if you read the Bible and you don't obey it, what's the point? The challenge James puts before us is reading God's word isn't about mentally ascending to beliefs, although that's important. It's important to believe the right things, but it can't stop in our heads. It has to move to our hearts and has to continue to our hands in our actions. It must change our lives. So James 1, 19, all the way to 2, 26, which we're not going to go all the way that far today, but next week we'll finish that off. It expounds on the word of truth. 
what James talks about in verse 18. He says this, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So this section, this next section is expounding on the word of truth. What does that mean? What does that look like? And so what James is going to show us, what we're going to go through today is that we read God's word correctly when it changes our lives. So this week we're going to talk about obedience to God's word and what that practically looks like for us. And we're going to talk about how God word should change our personal behavior, how it should change our social action, and how it should change our internal values. So personal behavior, social action, internal values. And then next week, what we'll see is that obedience to God's word is tied to genuine faith. That's what James talks about. If you have genuine faith, you'll obey God's word. So God's word, being the Bible, tells us a number of things about what it is and what it does. So when we look at God's word, Here's a few things it does. It guides your life. Look at Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We should be treating God's word as a place for us to find guidance. Remember, in ancient times, lamps and lights weren't flashlights or the lights in your car, right? You didn't, you weren't like, if it was dark, you weren't able to see all the way across the room. Like, this room was pitch black. We couldn't, like back in the day, you couldn't turn on a flashlight and see the other side of the room. So what David's saying in Psalms is he's saying that God tells you the destination, absolutely, that's eternal life with him. But God uses scripture to guide you one step at a time, just like if you had a lamp in the darkness. You can only see the next couple steps in front of you. And God's inviting you to trust him. Look at his word, seek guidance, but realize he's not going to always tell you the next 25 steps. He might just tell you the next two steps. So God's word should guide your life, but it also should convict your heart. That's what it's intended to do. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, listen, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Holy Spirit uses God's word to convict you of sin. And conviction is different than condemnation. The Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. He doesn't condemn you, and he reminds you of God's grace and mercy towards you in Jesus. So guides and convicts. It also instructs and corrects. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. God's word, God in his word, he gives us his word to tell us what to do. And then he, so we can then correct our course. We can, can make changes in our lives. And lastly, this is probably my, my favorite one, is that the Bible is your life source. Listen to how Peter talks about Jesus' words. Simon Peter answered Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Eternal life is the quality of life that begins now through faith in Jesus, and it continues after death into eternity. It's kind of like living in light of eternity, we might say. Now. And Peter's saying we should treat Jesus' word, God's word, as the thing our lives depend on. Where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. 
Do you see the Bible that way? As your life source. And when God's word is all these things for us, James says, first, God's word should change our personal behavior. Jump into verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. We read God's word correctly when it changes our behavior. Have you seen the He Gets Us ads? Have you seen any of those on YouTube or maybe on TV? He Gets Us is this marketing campaign run by Christians to attract skeptics and cultural Christians to Jesus. And what they do is when you go on hegetsus.com, they direct viewers to anybody who's really looking for prayer or someone to talk to, among other things. They're directed to a pastor at a local church. And I'm one of those pastors. So if you go on hegetsus.com and you sign up for prayer, you, you need to talk to somebody, there's a chance you're texting with me. So there's a real possibility. So it's been, it's been great. I mean, over the past... Like, month and a half that I've been signed up, signed up our church for it, I've probably talked to almost like 20 people dealing with anxiety, depression, loneliness, just need prayer for healing. It's been fantastic. But he gets us runs this ad during the Super Bowl. I don't know if you remember the ad during the Super Bowl, but it caught my attention. And there, I had like 40 or 50 people in my house during the Super Bowl. If we can talk about it, uh, the Super Bowl, we haven't really talked about it much. But... 40, 50 people, it was around halftime, and we see this ad, and this one called my attention. What you saw in the ad was a series of black and white photos of people yelling and screaming at each other. Did anybody else see this one? And you could just see the hate in people's eyes. And then there's a line that pops up at the end. Jesus loved the people we hate. It like, it hit me. Jesus loved the people we hate. And the 40, 50 people who were watching at the same time, everyone went, whoa. I think that taps into us so much because our culture is so slow to listen, so quick to speak, and so quick to get angry. The irony about those commercials, which I kind of find funny, is that one famous conservative podcaster got angry at those ads for being woke. But then somebody on the far left, the far left congressperson got angry at the ads because they're capitalistic. So if the right and left are angry at you, you're probably doing something right. They're tapping into something. They're tapping into our cultural posture of anger, and that posture is killing us. See, anger gives us the impression that we can produce in others what only God can produce in them. You hear me? It gives us that impression that if, like, if we set ourselves up as the authority over others rather than allowing God to be God, and we believe we can change people and we can change things, what? If we get angry enough. Think about that. That's what our culture thinks. If I get angry enough about this, things will change. And that plays out in our own lives, right? If your kids are copping an attitude. Well, if I get angry enough at them, they'll change. Or when somebody cuts you off on the road. Well, if I get angry enough at them, they'll learn to drive better. 
Or when the system props up injustice or when someone has a political opinion that's different than yours, you get angry. Why? Because you made yourself the authority instead of God and you believe that you can do what only he can do better and faster than he can do it. You think, well, if they listen to me, if my kids just listen to me, and if I yell it loud enough, they will start listening to me. Has that been very productive for you? If only they realize that this is my road. This is Evan Curry's road. I-95 is mine. So if they're going to be driving crazy like that, if they would really understand this is my road, I know how to drive. I never, like, I'm always paying attention. I'm never texting. I'm never looking at my phone. Or if only they were as enlightened as me. Or if they only read the books that I read or listened to the pundits that I listened to. If only they heed my advice. So when you've made yourself God and, when, and people don't listen to you, you get angry. And when you get angry, people tune you out. So what happens is you get angrier. And then you're stuck in an anger loop. So what ends up happening is you wake up every day looking for someone or something to be angry at or about, which makes you angrier and angrier, and eventually that will destroy you. Like being that angry all the time will exhaust you to the point of destruction. It will. You'll start destroying yourself, and you'll start destroying your relationships, and you'll find out you're exhausted and lonely. Because obedience, when James talks about obedience, obedience is all about authority. Whose authority do you and the world live under? Do they live under yours or do they live under God's? And if you read scripture correctly, you'll realize that God is the authority and obey him and you'll get out of his way and rely on him to produce only what he can produce. And when you do that, think about that. When you do that, you realize God is only able to produce in my kids what he can produce. I can't produce this in them. You'll be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And that's life-giving rather than exhausting because you're not responsible to fix people. You're not responsible to fix your kids or the guy who cut you off on the road. And you can't produce in them what God can produce in them, so that's actually life-giving. It gives you a break. The pressure's off of you to fix everybody. And so what ends up happening is you won't end up being lonely because people actually want to be around you because you realize that you can maintain friendships with people who disagree with you, who don't see things the same way as you, who vote differently than you, or just or look and act differently than you, rather than getting quickly angry at them for not. And what I'm talking about so far is unrighteous anger. In unrighteous anger, your first response to a different point of opinion or point of view or critique or rebuke, someone's experience with the anger or tears of your child should be to listen first before respond. I love what Proverbs 12, 16 says, The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. And this is how the message translates it. I thought I should get at the point more clearly. Fools have short fuses and explode all too quickly. The prudent quietly shrug off insults. Most of our anger is unrighteous. Because it's rooted in this deep love for myself where I'm the authority. And that's end up going to be very exhausting. It's going to be a, a very lonely way to live our lives. Even though it feels good for a moment, it's fleeting. 
Isn't that the wild thing about anger? Is like it feels good in the moment, and you get that high. But if it's all about your authority and it's about you being the authority and fixing everybody and producing in them what only God can produce in them, then to get that high again, you have to get angry again. And it's just, again, it's that loop, it's that cycle. But there is, a, such a, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Notice, James says you can speak. He doesn't say don't speak. He says be slow to speak. You can get angry. He doesn't say don't get angry. He says be slow to get angry. Righteous anger is possible. It's rooted in a deep love for God and others. Because sometimes you must speak up. Sometimes you have to get angry because someone is hurting God or they're hurting others. So when Jesus flips the money changers' tables in the temple, is a perfect example of that. He's angry because they're taking advantage of God and they're taking advantage of others. Jesus all the time, he receives insults himself. He's not flipping tables then. He's flipping tables when God is being blasphemed and when people are being hurt. But one of the benefits of righteous anger is living with the realization that God gets, at, gets angrier at sin than you do. Have you ever thought about that? The sin and the wickedness that you're angry at, God gets angrier at those things. So Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God gets angry at sin. He gets angry at wickedness out of his love. God is the authority. He hates sin and wickedness. And because he does, he'll take vengeance on those who commit it. So if someone hurt you or your kids, or if there's injustice, if someone abused you or your kids, you might get angry at those things, but you can take comfort knowing that God is angry at the, angrier at those things than you are at those things. And that comfort frees you to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And so then God's word should change our social action. Look at verse 22. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We read God's word correctly when it changes the way we treat others. So young people, for the first 1,400 years of Christianity, most people heard Scripture read rather than read it themselves. They heard it. So when the Gutenberg Press was invented in 1439, owning a Bible and reading it yourself became an option. But up to that point, really, owning a Bible was a privilege. And in fact, think about now, like, owning a Bible is a privilege that most of Christians throughout church history weren't able to do. So when James had his letter passed around to the churches around the Roman Empire, people would gather around and someone would read it out loud. They were literally hearing God's word. They were hearing it. So that they had to make an additional effort to not forget it and apply what it said. If you're hearing it, it's easier to forget it when you don't own a Bible and go back and look at it. So, and James writes about a person who hears God's word but forgets to apply it. He says in verse 23 to 24, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away, at once forgets what he looks like. 
There was a survey done in Britain some years ago that found out that women look at themselves in the mirror about 16 times per day. Anybody want to guess how many times a day men look at themselves in the mirror on average? 23 times per day. So, guys, I mean, we, like, yeah, the ladies aren't vain. It's probably, it's us. We're the problem. So, and then think about this also, too. Like, it's really hard for you to forget what you look like with the amount of mirrors and men looking 23 times a day in the mirror. Women looking 16 is still a lot, but not as vain as men. You, it's hard for you to forget what you look like. And because of smartphones, did you know the average American takes 20.2 photos per day? 20.2 photos per day. That's around about 7,300 photos a year. There's no way you're going to look at all those pictures. I know your kids are cute, but there's no way on God's green earth are you going to look at all those pictures when they grow up. It's impossible. 7,300 times 18, the years of your kids' lives living at home, it's a lot of pictures. I'm not going to do the math there. But it's hard for you to forget what you look like. In James' day, obviously, cameras didn't exist, and most people didn't own mirrors. So it was easy to see yourself at one point, maybe in water when you're reflecting on your life, or you're just looking in water, or like maybe you see it in a mirror. It's easy to see yourself then forget what you look like. So God's word, James refers to as the law of liberty, which is the Old Testament as interpreted by Jesus, and that would include the New Testament. The law of liberty is like a mirror. You look at it. See if your life reflects what it says, and if it doesn't, you make changes to fix it. So God's word should leave a lasting impression on you. So verse 26, James says, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Verse 27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. When you read the Bible, you should hear what God has to say. Keep your mouth shut. That's important. And do what it says. Sometimes it's that simple. Read the Bible. Do what it says. And the people I find in churches that have the hardest time with that simple move, read the Bible, do what it says, are people who've been Christians a long time. We're the ones who can talk ourselves out of it, or we know enough Bible verses, there are enough theology to kind of like get ourselves out of, rehear what it says, and do it. But James makes it that simple. Hear what it says, do it. And we do that by changing our social action. That's part of it. So he says there's two ways to do that. One is to care for the helpless. Widows and orphans isn't as specific as it might read. It's actually the Old Testament way of saying the helpless. And, by, and then he also says the other way you do this is by not showing favoritism based on social status. So swing over to chapter 2. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James says, basically he's, what he's going to say here is God doesn't show favoritism, so neither should we. And then he gives them an example based on social status. He says, hey, say for instance a poor man and a rich man both walk into your church. Who will you give more attention to? If you give the rich man more attention than the poor man, pick up in verse 4, James says this, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? James is saying this, don't show favoritism based on social status. He's saying you must remember you were spiritually poor, but God made you rich in faith, so you should care for the socially poor. Heart moves the hands. We realize what God has done for us. That's our heart. And then we do it for others. That's our hands. And then he challenges them. He says something like this. You favor the rich, but aren't the rich the ones who are oppressing you? By showing favoritism to the rich when they come to church, you're actually becoming the oppressors yourselves. So when we don't care for the helpless, we don't care for the poor, either by ignoring them or playing favorites, we're hearers, not doers, and we treat the world the way the world treats the world. Instead, what James is calling us to do, what the New Testament calls us to do, is we should treat the world better than the world treats the world. In the 4th century, the Roman emperor Julian, he writes this about Christians. Listen to this. He says, Christians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. He's saying that the Christians treat the world better than the world treats the world. I don't know if you know this, but during the Black Death in the mid-1300s, Catholic priests died at a higher rate than everyone else. Do you know why? Because when the world avoided the sick, priests took care of them. So more priests got sick and died. The world loves its biological kids. We should love every child, born and unborn. Kids who live in our homes and kids who live in our church homes. The world has plenty of cliques, but newcomers should be able to easily break in to your home meetings. You need to resist the urge to tell inside jokes that will leave visitors out. And we should be willing to break out of our comfort zones to multiply when we need to multiply. So we have new home meetings for new people. Treat the world better than the world treats the world. Don't treat your home meeting as a click. Don't just love your kids. Make sure it's open for everyone. Make sure all kids are loved. The world has plenty of people who are generous after they use all their money for whatever they want to use it for. But we should be sacrificially generous and give God of our first fruits. The world puts comfort over service, but we should put service over comfort. The world offers plenty of social clubs, but we aren't a social club. We're a church. So we should welcome visitors first before running to our friends. The world pushes away people who are different than them, and we should understand that we all are spiritually poor. We were all in the same boat, but Jesus died for us and made us spiritually rich, so we should invite everyone, no matter what their status is in the world, to put their faith and trust in Jesus. We should treat the world better than the world treats the world, and if we're not, we're not reading the Bible correctly. 
God's word should leave a lasting impression on you. It should be like looking in a mirror and seeing what you need to fix and fixing it. If you hear what I'm saying, if you hear what the Bible is saying today and it's convicting you and you hear it and you don't do anything with it, James is saying, what's the point? If your home meeting is a click, the world has clicks. High schools have clicks. You should be different. The world's generous? Absolutely. You should be more generous than them. And you should look at generosity differently than they look at it. The world gives, gives and they give their other finances. Why? To make themselves feel better about themselves. We give it because there's nothing for us to, like, we've already been justified. There's nothing for me to feel. It's already been given to me. I've re- received it by faith. And Jesus moves my heart to give. We look at it differently. We treat the world better than the world treats the world. And so the God's word should change our social action, and it should then change our internal values. Look at James 2, 12 through 13. He says this, So speak and so act, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We read God's word correctly if it gives us more merciful hearts. James's big brother, Jesus, said something similar to what James said there. He says in Matthew 6, 14 to 15, For you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Here's the point. You receive in death what you value in life. A basic example, if you value sin in life, You'll get the consequences of sin and death. Life separated from God in eternity in hell. But James and Jesus are saying something a little bit deeper. They're saying if we value God like mercy in this life and show it to others, you can expect to get it in death from God at his judgment seat. But if you don't value mercy, it may mean that you never actually have received mercy yourself. You may have fooled yourself. You may have deceived yourself, as James talks about in chapter 1. But you never actually have received it if you're not showing it. We haven't put our faith and trust in Jesus, and our hearts haven't changed if we're not showing mercy to others. See, if you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus died for your sins. And he took the penalty you deserved. You received mercy when you deserved judgment. And so if we're giving judgment when we have received mercy, James is saying, and Jesus is saying, you never actually, it's never actually hit you here. It's never changed your heart. The same mercy we've been given by God in Jesus, we should want to show others. Because when our hearts are increasingly merciful, It reveals to us and others that we ourselves have been rescued by the mercy of God. This isn't works-based salvation. It's still about Jesus' work. It's all about God's mercy being given to to us. But God takes mercy very seriously. If God tolerated ignoring the helpless or showing favoritism to the rich over the poor, that would be incredibly unmerciful. Be incredibly unmerciful to the helpless, incredibly unmerciful to the poor. So God cannot and will not tolerate a world 
where his mercy doesn't reign supreme. And because he takes mercy so seriously, he must take sin and wickedness seriously. He must take your sin and your wickedness so seriously because he wants to give you his love and his grace. So when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you receive mercy. And you, what James is saying, if that is true, let that mercy overflow from your heart to your hands toward those around you. Hear God's word. Let it sink into your heart. If you really have received that, show it. Jesus' way is a better way. Don't you see? It's better than what the world has to offer. When we read God's word correctly, our lives and our world change for the better. You're slower to get angry when you're following Jesus. So the collective anger of the world, what happens because one less person is angry our collective anger goes down a little bit. If every Christian takes this seriously and is slow to get angry, the collective anger of the world would go down. You care for the helpless and don't show favoritism. So people, what happens is people are welcomed and cared for. That's a better world. You receive the mercy of God and Jesus and the world becomes a less, less harsh place for others. So here's my challenge to you. Immerse yourself in God's word. Immerse yourself. Jump into the deep end of the pool and take it in. And enjoy it and swim in it. Let it be the air that you breathe. Let it be your life source. You have to read your Bible every day. You must do that. That's the first step. I'm not being legalistic here. I'm telling you, it will change your life. It's the thing that changed my life. That, that rhythm absolutely changed my life, reading my Bible every day. And you live in the 21st century. We live in the 21st century where we have podcasts like the Daily Office or the ESV Daily Office Lectionary where you can legitimately hear Scripture read to you. And there's apps like Version. Somebody told me about Glorify. You should be, like, immersing yourself. Like, read your Bible in the morning. Listen to more Bible while you're driving. Like, just keep going back to it. You have a question about something, you're trying, you need guidance, ask the Lord to show you something in Scripture. Listen to preaching. You know what you can do easily? Listen to this sermon midway through the week to remind yourself of everything you learned. Immerse yourself. Find other preachers that you respect, particularly those who have been doing it for a while. Like, anybody can do it, like, for four years at a church plant. But there's guys out there who pre have been preaching for years. Those guys have been immersed in Scripture, and they, there's reasons why people continue to listen to them. Home meetings are incredibly important because sometimes during the week you're going back to Scripture. Your home meeting's not a click. It's not fellowship time. There's parts of that. There's parts of fellowship, but it's about Scripture and prayer. And then theology. You should read theology. Grab a book off the table. There's tons of books. We give them away for free. We got more stacked away somewhere. If you want another book, if you say, I, need a, I would love to read a book on this topic, talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to Pastor Kyle. But don't just hear scripture, do it. 
Allow it to make this lasting impression on you. Let it guide your life, convict you, instruct you, and correct you, and let it be your life source. But if you were reading God's word correctly, it should change our lives. And when it changes our lives, it changes our world. Let's pray.